What makes someone agreeable? If you're kind, friendly, good to talk to, that's the very essence of agreeableness, isn't it? But what about honesty? It's a common thing that people value honesty, right? Deep down, though, I think we know that's not really true. If someone's really, deep down, an absolute jerk, but they're kind to your face, you'll probably still like them. That is, find them agreeable. At least until you get to know them, anyway. And what if it's flipped? They're awful on the outside, but kind and thoughtful on the inside with their actions. They may not be conventionally agreeable, but it's probably more honest, isn't it? Maybe what it really takes to be agreeable is money and good breeding. Chapters 24 to 29 take us away from Longbourn and the questions of outward agreeableness and honesty continue to be posed. Volume 2 opens with Jane and Elizabeth discussing Mr Bingley and his sisters. A letter arrives from Miss Bingley, clearly stating that they will be staying in London for the winter and not returning to Netherfield. And it also says that Mr Bingley is growing increasingly close to Miss Darcy. That's Mr Darcy's sister. Now, Elizabeth sees this as Bingley being manipulated, but Jane is naturally upset and generally sees the good in people, so can't really believe that she's being lied to by Miss Bingley. In addition, we learn that what Elizabeth had heard about Darcy's treatment of Mr Wickham is now all about the town, and everyone in the town generally... Uh, I suppose, realises why they never liked him in the first place because of this uh, supposed treatment of Mr Wickham. Following all of this, Mrs Bennet's brother and his wife, that is Mr and Mrs Gardner, come to visit Longbourn from London where they live. And it's said that Mr Gardner is a man who lived by a trade on page 137, but he's still well-bred and agreeable. Uh, He's markedly more sensible than his sister, it's actually noted. That is Mrs. Bennett, who's a bit of a ridiculous person, it's fair to say. Elizabeth and Mrs. Gardner discuss love, and Jane agrees to go and visit London with the Gardners when they return home. She sort of does this because there's this small chance of seeing Bingley, but as Elizabeth jokes around on page 139, they live in a far too poor a part of town, for someone like Darcy to come and visit them with Mr Bingley, for example. So eventually, Jane and the Gardeners set off to London after Mrs Gardner cautions Elizabeth against Wickham because essentially he's poor and she needs to marry well. And in London, Jane meets Miss Bingley twice without Mr Bingley being there. Um, and seems to finally see through the deception. We learn this from a letter that she sends to Elizabeth. And she believes that everything is really done with Mr Bingley now. It seems clear that that relationship has been cut off and she understands that the relationship between... uh, That is, Jane understands that the relationship between her and Miss Bingley is sort of over. Wickham, meanwhile, stops chasing Elizabeth and has now set his sights on a Miss King, who we never really meet. And he sets in sight on Miss King because she happens to have come into a fortune of £10,000. 
Despite this loss of affection from Mr. Wickham, however, Elizabeth isn't too disappointed. She's thinking that she can't have ever really been in love with him because she's not really disappointed about uh, him giving up on her. But she still thinks that he's, quote, her model of the amiable and pleasing. That's page 150. Following this, it's decided that Elizabeth, Sir William Lucas, and Lucas's second daughter, Maria, will take a trip down to Hunsford to visit Charlotte, or that is the new Mr. and Mrs. Collins, where they live. They stop over in London along the way and stay with the Gardeners and Jane, and Mrs. Gardner and Elizabeth discuss Wickham's, quote, mercenary nature, and later plan a trip that they'll take to what they refer to as the lakes, which is far northwest of England. And that'll come up later. So they head further south from London and chapter 28 sees them arrive in Hunsford and Rosings. Now, just a note on the locations here. They are heading towards Kent, which is the Shire, which is like a state. Uh, in, and it is a real place in the south of England. Um, they're going to Rosings, which is the name of the estate, like Longbourn. Uh, Rosings is the state, the estate of Lady Catherine de Burr. Uh, remember that Mr. Collins works for effectively sort of Lady Catherine. Um, and Hunsford is the township where Mr. Collins is rector. So that is the priest um, of that parish. And they also refer to this place called Parsonage. And the Parsonage is essentially the housing that would be given to the rector of a particular area. And in this case, it seems like it's provided by Lady Catherine de Burr. It's not actually on the Rosings estate. It seems it's sort of looking at it. It's across the road from it. So I know there's a lot of confusion in some of the names there, but hopefully that helps, helps you out a little bit. When they arrive, Mr. Collins is his usual self, sort of flamboyant and silly in a way, and he's really trying to show off how well off he is. Now, particularly, he's trying to rub this in, I think, to Elizabeth to show uh, what she missed out on by rejecting him. Um, and there's lots worth noting about some of the descriptive, descriptive pieces here, but I'll stick to the plot for now. Uh, and Mr. Burr, that is uh, Lady Catherine's daughter, drops past and in a carriage. She doesn't actually get out of the carriage and essentially in speaking to Charlotte, um, invites everyone that's staying there to tea. Now, just a quick side note. Remember that Elizabeth knows that Mr. Burr is supposedly matched with Mr. Darcy to get married uh, later on. So pushing ahead to this dinner, we finally meet Lady Catherine de Burr and she seems to do most of the talking. She comes across as really rude and she tells others what to do with their lives as though her opinion is the real thing that matters in anything. And the others uh, seem to allow this. It's really allowed because she is such high class. Lady Catherine de Burr is in fact the highest class that we meet in the novel at all. And Lady Catherine questions Elizabeth and she answers cordially for the most part, but Elizabeth pushes back a little bit, which is sort of unheard of, uh, with two people of these quite different statuses. Uh, where everyone else is sort of too in awe of Lady Catherine, Elizabeth isn't and still speaks her mind at times. So that's where we'll leave the plot for now and we'll move into a little bit of analysis. 
two things I'd like to focus on for the analysis in this episode. Uh, the first is this idea of agreeableness and what that means and where it comes from. And the second is I'm going to look at a descriptive passage or the description in particular of Rosings, Lady Catherine de Burr's estate. But starting with this idea of agreeableness, uh, to be agreeable is a very old fashioned term and it's essentially how pleasant they are to talk to, how good their company is. Remember that this is an era of intense formality, particularly among this class of people. Money and social class are definitely closely linked, of course, but the class system is more related to the circumstances of your birth. If you know anything about the Indian case system, there's a lot of elements of that that come across in this at the time, uh, which is why they often refer to things like good breeding. And what Austin seems to do here is shift our point of view so that we as an audience, that is both the contemporary audience that she was writing for, and I think it still holds true of the modern audience, we don't really equate status with agreeableness, particularly through the eyes of Elizabeth. Let's start by taking Lady Catherine de Burr. She's, I think I mentioned before, she's the highest social class that we actually meet in the novel, but she's not really agreeable at all. And she comes across as such because Austen essentially presents her to us through Elizabeth's eyes. And Elizabeth isn't intimidated by status and wealth. On page 158, it says, quote, Elizabeth's courage did not fail her. She had heard nothing of Lady Catherine that spoke her awful from extraordinary talents or miraculous virtue, and the mere stateliness of money and rank she thought she could witness without trepidation. Just a quick note on the word awful there uh, is used in this context more like awesome that we would use today, not awful as in bad. So Elizabeth isn't intimidated and that's strange because Maria, Charlotte's younger sister and Sir William are intimidated and it says that Sir William really shouldn't be because he's hung out with a lot of really upper class people in his time. He's a knight after all, even if he's not particularly uh, high status uh, in the same way that Lady Catherine is. But we're told that, quote, page 159, Elizabeth found herself quite equal to the scene. And as a result, we find ourselves equal to the scene as well. So we're not intimidated by Lady Catherine. So we can really see her uh, in the way that Austen wants her to be presented. And as a result, she doesn't seem very agreeable at all. On page 160, we're told that Lady Catherine would often be, quote, delivering her opinion on every subject in so decisive a manner as proved that she was not used to having her judgment controverted. And later on the same page, it says, quote, Elizabeth felt all the impertinence of her questions, but answered them composedly. So we see that Lady Catherine is pretty upfront and really a little bit rude but it's sort of excused because she's high status, but we as an audience don't really have that, or allow her that same excuse. So let's compare that to someone of lower social status in the form of Mr. Gardner. Mr. Gardner is introduced on page 137 as quote, Mr. Gardner was a sensible gentleman-like man, greatly superior to his sister as well by nature as education. 
The Netherfield ladies would have had difficulty in believing that a man who lived by trade and within view of his own warehouses could have been so well-bred and agreeable. There are two really interesting things to note about that. The first is that he's a man who lived by trade. We don't actually know what that trade is, but the fact that he lives by trade rather than living off his own, the ownership of his own land sort of shows that he is already lower than this landed gentry that we are often uh, spending our time with. But that line about being so well-bred and agreeable even though he's, quote, in view of his own warehouses. It's a real status symbol there uh, that he would actually live close to the things that he owns in terms of functioning the trade, which, of course, the Netherfield ladies um, really look down on. But despite all this, he's really considered highly agreeable. He's a nice person. And then there's Wickham. Everyone in town seems to think really highly of Mr. Wickham because he presents as so agreeable. We get this from Elizabeth. We get this from everyone else that meets him. He is pleasant company. To the point that even after Wickham appears to stop pursuing Elizabeth and chases after Miss King and her newfound fortune, Elizabeth states on page 150, quote, She parted from him convinced that whether married or single, he must always be her model of the amiable and pleasing. This apparent misjudgment of character is, I think, important in establishing what being agreeable really is, particularly later on in the novel. And there's a really deep irony in the critique of his, quote, mercenary approach to affection that Miss, Mrs. Gardner accuses him of, uh, especially considering the consistent advice that Elizabeth gets to ensure she marries someone of wealth. But it's important to note that Mr. Wickham comes across as extremely agreeable because he's such pleasant company, and it really has very little to do with his status or wealth. Let's move now to having a look at some of the description, particularly of Rosings and the Parsonage. I mentioned in an earlier episode that because there's actually very little description in the novel and there's a lot of speech instead, this makes the moments of description all the more important, particularly when it talks about scenery. In this case, it seems to be about material wealth. When Elizabeth arrives at the parsonage, Collins extols all the, of his furniture and the virtues um, that he has by way of wealth and is expressive in trying to show how well off he is. An interesting passage comes on page 154. They're being taken through the garden and it says, quote, But of all the views which his garden or which the country or the kingdom could boast, none were to be compared with the prospect of Rosings, afforded by an opening in the trees that bordered the park nearly opposite the front of his house. It was a handsome modern building, well situated on rising ground. That might seem like an innocuous quote, but while Collins speaks of the beauty of the fields and the trees, it's Rosings itself that's given the most praise. And it's really interesting to note that it's only seen through quote, an opening in the trees. Rosing seems to be representative of the grand wealth and status that Elizabeth and her family are separated from by their slightly lower social class. They can only really catch a glimpse 
of the wealth that's there. And it's really interesting to note that it can only be seen through this gap in the trees as though they can only see small portions or be a part of small portions of such grand wealth. And it's contrasted later on page 154 and into 155 by the description of Parsonage itself. It says, quote, it was rather small, but well built and convenient. Well built and convenient is the comparison here to handsome modern building well situated on rising ground. So you can see how a little bit of meaning can come across in these tight snippets of descriptive passages. And it's something worth looking for in your ongoing reading of the text. That's the end of another episode of Mr. E English. In the next episode, we'll see Darcy arrive in the area with a surprising shift in his presentation. Thanks very much for listening to Mr. E English and enjoy your reading.